Well, good morning. I'm going to be in Acts chapter 13 this morning. We're mostly going to be in the first three verses there, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Those are important verses, but we're also going to try to summarize about four chapters here pretty quickly, just so you'll have an idea of what's going on within this book. And so what we're doing is we're moving, we're moving along in the book of Acts, which is good. It's ex exciting. We've been in Acts for a while. We started Acts back in September, and we're getting through it. Of course, we've had breaks on Acts through Advent and most of January, but we are moving through Acts, and I'm looking forward to it. We're starting to get to the part where um, it, it's all going to talk about Paul and Paul's ministry. We're moving from primarily Peter to primarily Paul, and we're going to look at Paul's first missionary journey that he goes on with Barnabas, and so we're going to be able to see all the things that happen there. I've entitled this sermon, Increase and Multiply, Increase and Multiply, and so multiplication. Multiplication is important in the scriptures as well. Multiplication happens faster than addition. I didn't know if you knew that, but this is the idea of the gospel. We want the gospel to multiply. We want the church to multiply. When I was a kid, we used to have these time tests for multiplication tests. Did y'all have those? Did, it, did you guys right here, Caden and, and Braxton, y'all had those? Have you had those, Aaron? That's terrifying for a kid, right? Did, they, did you have a, like a time test for multiplication problems? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's scary. You know, I remember in fourth grade, we had a teacher who would just call out five multiplication problems and didn't give us very long at all. He'd just call them out. We had to write it. We had to write the answer down. There was five of them. So it went real quick. It'd be like six times nine, five times four, you know, whatever. And just five of those, we'd write them down and he'd say pencils down. And if you didn't get them, then just too bad. Um, and that's how most of us learned. Some of us probably didn't, but I did. I learned. So that's a good way to do it. Um, multiplication, though. If, if you um, think about re reproductive cycles of nature and the world's biological population explosion, soon it will be clear to you why multiplication is God's primary method for replenishing the earth. I looked up this stat that I think that you'll understand. One unspayed female dog and her descendants can produce 4,372 puppies in just seven generations. It's a lot. And one unspayed cat and her offspring can produce 80 million kittens in 10 years. I mean, they just, this is multiplication. This is why you should get your pet, your pet spayed and neutered, right? <laughs> Can't take care of that many animals. The same fundamental concept of multiplication applies to the Great Commission. One of the things that, um, that I looked up and, and I heard a while back, but did, did you know this, that if you took a single penny and doubled it every day for 30 days, you would end up with $5,368,709.12. Did y'all know that? So I know some of you are going to be like getting out your calculator and doing that, but that's doubling it every day. So from two to four, four to eight cents and so on. You know, it's, it is, that's a lot of money. 
So I want you to understand that the New Testament church was about multiplication. And Antioch would become the launching pad for multiplication in the church. They went, the, the people of Jerusalem at the Jerusalem church, they were persecuted. Because of the persecution, mostly of Stephen, they were scattered. And they came to Antioch. And Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Antioch was the largest city of the area and the capital of the Roman province of Syria with a population of about half a million or more. Only Rome and Alexandria were larger at the time. There was an island with a palace and a hippodrome in the middle of the Orontes River. They also had this. This is impressive to me. For the first century, they had an aqueduct, baths, two theaters, and they had temples to Artemis and Hercules. They had marble paved roads. They had Olympic style games. And it was a very diverse place. Very cosmo, it was a very cosmopolitan place. And so this was a place that was ripe for church multiplication. It was ripe for um, them to be able to start a church. And like I said, because of persecution, Christians had spread to Antioch and they began preaching the gospel. So as we continue to go through this, here's some of the events that happened. If we're looking at Acts 11 through 14, if we remember what we're coming from, we're coming off the conversion of Cornelius. Peter goes to Cornelius. He shares the gospel with Cornelius. And what Peter does is he leaves there. Now, Peter, um, Cornelius is converted, and then salvation came to the Gentiles, and this was a huge thing. So Peter goes back, and he tells the church at Jerusalem what happened, and they're basically saying, or, this is kind of strange. Are you sure Gentiles can be saved too? And so Peter is saying that I cannot withhold anything. I, I cannot make any distinction between people. Salvation is for the Jew and the Gentile alike. So he tells them, he basically retells the story of what happened with Cornelius, and then we see what we have here. We, we know that many people, because of persecution, spread to Antioch, and many people believed. And so Barnabas, he came to Antioch, and he was called there to validate what was happening. If we remember who Barnabas is, it says in Acts chapter 4, 36, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's in Acts 4. That's the first time we hear about Barnabas. Barnabas is going to Antioch because he's affirming everything that's happening there. So once he does that, he decides that he's going to go to Tarsus and he's going to get this young man named Saul. Saul, we remember from Acts chapter 9, he's just been converted. The scripture says he goes back to Tarsus and he's probably sharing the gospel there. He's probably studying there. And then Barnabas says, okay, I need this man named Saul and brings him back to teach the people at Antioch for a year. So he's discipling the people there. The scriptures say also in chapter 11 that this was the first time that the people were called Christians. So we're starting to see some of the, the history being played out. They were called Christians. Now it was probably not a term of endearment from the people who called them that. This was not what they called themselves. This is what other people called them, and it kind of caught on. 
and that's what we call ourselves today. And that's kind of been the same things with with other denominations as well, you know, such as Methodists, that we were known as the people called Methodists because that's what people first called John Wesley and all the people who he was discipling in the first Methodist movement because they're very methodical in their approach. So the name kind of stuck, and now here we are. So this was when they were first called Christians. And so the disciples, eventually, they go to Jerusalem to help with relief for the brothers in Judea during a famine. And so they sent people over there to um, help with the famine, and then they eventually they come back, and that's when you start chapter 12. In chapter 12, you start seeing persecution. James is killed by Herod Agrippa I, and Peter is thrown into prison. So this is James the Apostle, not the half-brother of Jesus, but James the Apostle. He's killed. He's the first Christian martyr, the first or the first um, disciple to be killed. And then Peter is thrown into prison. And then what happens when Peter is thrown into prison is the disciples, it says, or the believers pray for him earnestly. And then an angel of the Lord leads him out of prison and Peter instructs them to tell James, not, the, not James who's dead, but the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then it just says Peter goes to another place. And we don't really know where he goes. Kind of switches to the Apostle Paul. We'll see Peter later on in Acts, but we're not sure where he goes. Then, because Herod is so upset, because... Peter breaks out of prison. He kills the two guards who are watching Peter. And then Herod, guess what happens to him? He starts receiving all this praise. He begins to speak and the people say, he has the voice of a God and not a man. And you know what happens? He dies right then. He dies because of that. He is struck in with illness and he dies because he receives wrongful praise. And then it says something interesting. The word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied there at the end of chapter 12. And then Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem, from the famine, come to Antioch in Syria, and then you have chapter 13. And so in Acts chapter 13, let me read that to you. Let me just read the first three verses there. So let's turn there if you haven't already. So we have Acts 13. This is when Barnabas and Saul are sent off. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manning, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping and fasting, or while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they're sending these guys out. And it says that they left and they proclaimed the word of God, and this was their job. They didn't deviate from it. And then what they did was they went to a port city, and then they left, and they went to the island of Cyprus. And then in Pathos, or Paphos, they come upon a magician. God strikes him blind, and the proconsul there, it says, believes. 
And then Paul then preaches a sermon at Antioch in Pisidia, which is uh, not the same Antioch, but it's, a, it's another Antioch where he travels. He's traveling hundreds of miles. He's either on a boat or he's on foot, but he's going pretty much all over the known world at the time, trying to expand as far as he can. And he usually does it in the synagogue. And so at Pisidia, the Jews reject his message, but it says the Gentiles gladly received it. They were seekers. They wanted to know who God was. And then it says the disciples left with joy and they were full of the Spirit. And then in chapter 14, they come to Iconium. And then Jews and Greeks both believed at the synagogues. And the Jews and Gentiles tried to stone Paul and Barnabas. So they left and went to Lystra. And then while they were in Lystra, Paul heals a crippled man and they mistake Paul and Barnabas for false gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they try to offer them sacrifices, but Paul and Barnabas stop them and point them to the true God, the creator of all things. And so the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, then after they hear of what's going on, they've chased them down, and they come from 100 miles away to stone Paul and almost kill him. And then he recovers and then he goes with Barnabas to Derby and makes many disciples in that city. And then he makes his way back around to go back to where he started at Antioch in Syria. So he goes back. He returns to Lystra, Iconium, uh, and Antioch in Pisidia to encourage the disciples there. He's plant churches. He's set up churches. He has appointed elders. He is trying to get this thing going by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is fulfilling the Great Commission. He's fulfilling what Jesus has called the disciples to do in Acts 1.8. And then he returned to Antioch in Syria because the work had been fulfilled. All of this took place in about two years, from about A.D. 47 to A.D. 48, this was Paul's first missionary journey that he went on with Barnabas. And what a journey it was. Some of you, you probably have maps in the back of your Bible, especially if you have a, a study Bible that will show you all the places where Paul went on his first missionary journey. It was very far. It took him two years to do this. They were planning churches. They were pushing the gospel forward by multiplication. And it, it was... Really an amazing thing that was happening. The New Testament is clear that the mission of the church is to multiply. And when people hear the gospel and are saved, they're stirred in their hearts to go and share the same hope that saved them. In Acts 1, remember what Jesus said. And this is beginning to be the fulfillment of that. Jesus said to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is mission. And this is what, what we want to be able to do as a church. We want to grow and reach people all over the world beginning right here where we are in our community. And, and this is going to happen by spreading out and done through multiplication. This could include sending people to different parts of town or different parts all over the world, wherever God may be calling us. Even our small church, God is calling us to reach further places for him and reach the nations. And so up until this point in Christian history, Jerusalem was the center for ministry, and now Antioch had became the new center for ministry in the church, and they were the launching pad to send um, 
disciples or missionaries out all over the world, and it's worked pretty well because think about it. From Jerusalem all the way to where we are today in Riesel, this is God's plan. This was his plan in the beginning, at the beginning of the, the, the book of Acts and at the end of the Gospels. Jesus is telling his people to go and make disciples. And the people here, we are part of that. We're part of that. We, it, it doesn't stop with us. It continues to go forward with us. And this has been God's plan from the beginning. This is his mission. Remember what Genesis 1.28 says. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's mission has always been for his people to increase and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And so in the beginning, that looked like image bearers, Adam and Eve, going out and and pushing the beauty of Eden out into the entire world. And so we know when sin entered the world, that got corrupted. But now, through Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, and him reconciling us to God, we are restored image bearers with the message of the gospel. And now Jesus is calling us to do the same thing. It just looks a little bit different. It's go and make disciples of all nations. And so we continue to do that. We continue to increase and multiply. We are making disciples who make disciples. We're making more and more children of God, people who have been converted. And so we can actually do this. We can actually do this. So what does this look like in our context? Like, could we plant churches? Could we expand our ministry? And, and what does that look like? How was this done? Well, I just want to look at a few things here of how the early church did it. I think that they, they always give us a model for how we can do what God has called us to do. How can we fulfill the Great Commission? Well, if you'll notice here in Acts 13, you'll see a couple of places. If you look in verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So that's important. They were worshiping and fasting. And then in verse 3 it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that's Acts 13, 2 and 3. So these were people of great prayer. These were people who really wanted to hear from God. They were serious about it. They knew they needed power from God. They knew if God didn't do it, then they couldn't do it on their own. Think of where they were. These were Christians in an evil Roman Empire, and Christians were already beginning to be persecuted here. Remember, in Acts 2, I think, it said they had favor with all the people there. Well, this is starting to diminish, it seems like. And now Herod is after them. Now he's dead, but he was after him. Now you've got Jews after them. You have Romans after them. And, and these are people who are going to be killed just for their beliefs. There was no freedom of speech, freedom of religion. There was none of that. They needed the power of God if they were going to do anything. And so they earnestly sought the Lord. Think of how many times you see prayer just in Acts. 
In Acts 1, you see that they had prayer. Right after Jesus ascended in Acts 1, we see prayer. There in Acts 1.12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near the city, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. With one accord, they all continued in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So prayer. Remember Acts chapter 2 in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In Acts 3, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. In Acts 4.23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So they're praying. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of God. So we see this. All throughout it, in Acts 8, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So we see prayer, Acts 9, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. We see prayer all the time. In Acts 11, when Peter was in prison, this is what happened. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So we know just by looking at the book of Acts that prayer was important. And it was earnest prayer. We know it was earnest prayer. It wasn't like half-hearted prayer. It wasn't like rehearsed prayers. Like these were prayers because they really wanted to hear from God. Earnestly can mean stretched out or continuously. This is agonizing prayer. As Jesus was agonizing from the Garden of Gethsemane, they wanted to see God move. And I want to encourage you, if we want to do what the the scriptures are calling us to do, and we want to be a church that's about evangelism and reaching out and multiplying, then we have to start with us. We have to start with prayer. And sometimes we don't think of prayer as actually doing anything. We think, well, we'd rather be doing something. Like I'm going to, I might pray for a couple minutes a day, but then I'm going to go out and I'm going to do. But I want to encourage you with this. There was a Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers, and he said this. He said, prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. They wanted to hear from God so bad they were praying to him. And this was their work for God. It wasn't like, well, we're going to run off and do something later after we prime the pump here with prayer and we're actually going to go do our work for him later. But this was the work. This was their work. In Colossians 4, verse 12, it says, Epaphras who is one with you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in the Hierapolis. So it's saying his work is prayer. Epaphras' work is prayer. And so I don't, I don't want to be a people that 
think we are praying so that we can do ministry, although we do need to be empowered to do what God has called us to do, but consider your prayers work and consider your prayers ministry. There's nothing greater that you can do than pray. Prayer moves the hearts of people. And when we pray, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of a revival. That's the beginning of a multiplication. That's the beginning of people's hearts being set on fire to go and to disciple and evangelize and multiply. And and we are able to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And prayer isn't something that we just set aside a few weeks for. Prayer is something that we must continually be doing. I don't know if you've heard of the Welsh revival, but this happened in Wales in 1904 through 1905. And during this time, 100,000 people in Wales were saved. I mean, in the span of one year, 100,000 people were saved. The catalyst for this was a man named Evan Roberts, who was only 26 years old at the time. I mean, here's what it says about him. It says that Evan... Evan Roberts, he had a deep life of intercession. He would be awoken by the Lord at 1 a.m. and be in prayer for four hours till the break of dawn as he sought the Lord's face for revival to break out in Wales. So he, and this is a man, like if you, if you study the history of the, the Welsh revival, this is a man who had dedicated the last 13 years of his life to praying for revival to break out all over Wales. So this means this man was about 13 years old when he started to pray earnestly for God to move and to do something in the hearts of people. And it happened. It happened. It was, I mean, it was impressive. But he was devoted to prayer. People there were re- devoted to prayer. The disciples, they were devoted to prayer. They, did, they needed to know when they, they should send somebody away. They needed to know when God and how God was going to multiply and do what he was going to do. Paul and Barnabas were there for a year and then they decided to send them out. And the, they knew to do that because they were so much in touch with God through prayer. Not only prayer, but fasting and worshiping. And they were in community with one another. And they spent time in the word. It says in verse 5 and 13 that they, when they arrived, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So they didn't deviate from the word either. So they were people of prayer. And we have to be people of prayer. But they also, they had a radical commitment. They had a radical commitment And this is important for us to know. Paul and Barnabas could have stayed in Antioch and been really comfortable there. But they had a radical commitment to what God was doing. They were willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. Paul in Acts 14 was left for dead. I mean, he could have stayed in Jerusalem. He didn't have to go halfway around the world, but he did it because he had a radical commitment to the gospel. And how do we get that? Well, of course we get that through prayer, but you know what? The church, they didn't hold too tightly to what they had. They had an eternal mindset. They knew that they may never see Saul and Barnabas again or Paul and Barnabas again, but they sent them out anyway because they knew that they would get an eternity with them no matter what. So they had 
a radical commitment. They did whatever God had called them to do. And I pray that we would be a church like that. If we are being called to go do new things, or if we're being called not to maybe be a missionary, although follow that call, or plan a church somewhere else, but are, are there different areas of ministry that we could explore here in this town or in our surrounding communities that God has put on your heart? Could it be that there's people here who know the Bible so well, which many of you do, that could be starting something new, that could be doing more? And this comes through outreach, but, there, but there's many of us here who could certainly be a leader of a new group, a new small group, a different ministry. There's so many other things that we may be able to do. I want you to know that you are the ministers of the church. And when this happens, when people begin to um, disciple new people, new believers... When, when people begin to be sent out to start new groups and have new discipleship groups, and then that's when multiplication starts happening. That's when multiplication starts happening. And, it, and, and I'll end with this. When, when one person starts to disciple even two other people and, and stays with those people for one year, then here's what eventually happens. At the end of that year, you have two more disciples who are ready to go out and disciple two more people. So then the next year you have nine, and then you multiply that by three, and you get 27. You have 27 by year three. By year four, you have 81 people who are being discipled, and at the end of that year, they're ready to disciple. And if they find people to disciple... Then by year five, you have 243 people being discipled. And by the end of year five, you have 243 mature believers who are ready to disciple. It's slow growth, but that's multiplication. It happens slowly, but when it picks up steam, it begins to multiply. And then the last thing here is not only did they pray, not only did they have a radical commitment to the gospel, but they had a radical love for people. And I think that's what we have to remember. They, they preached the forgiveness of sins in Acts 13, 37 through 39, we see this. They knew that people were hopeless without a Savior. And that's why they did this. That's why they were willing to give their lives for the gospel. They returned to the churches they planted in order to give encouragement and continue in the faith. They knew that Jesus had said, love others as I have loved you. So that's a sacrificial love that they were giving. They remembered the love that Jesus showed them, which was his life and his death. He gave their very lives for them and he resurrected. And he proved his power over sin, Satan, and the grave. And these people were sold out for that message. The same Christ and the same God who loved them, they were now going out to share to a lost and broken world, and they wanted to know about, they wanted them to know about it too. And so, as we end today, I want you to consider these things. It's um, multiplication, 
It's what God has called us to do. It's Acts 1-8, to go be my witnesses. It's, it's the great commission, make disciples of all nations. And it happens through prayer. It happens through having a radical commitment to what God wants and not um, becoming so comfortable. And it happens through loving others. And so we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to convict us in the places we need to be convicted. And um, wherever we need to be convicted, wherever we're feeling like maybe I'm not in prayer as much as I should be, maybe I am a little too comfortable, or maybe I just don't have a heart for lost people and love people, then we're going to ask God to, to just help us with that today. Father, um, I thank you for who you are and what you're doing in this church. Father, help us to pray. Help us to know the importance of prayer. Lord, I know that the disciples, they certainly knew the importance of prayer in the book of Acts. They needed you desperately. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be people who understand our desperate need for you. And we pray that you would move in the hearts of people. We pray that we wouldn't give up. We wouldn't give up after a few weeks of prayer, even a year of prayer. But Lord, I pray that we would persevere until we hear from you, until we see you move and work in the lives of people. Father, we pray that we would not hold so tightly to worldly things, that we wouldn't be comfortable, Lord, in what we're doing, but you would push us to new things or push us to things that you have called us to do, Lord, and help us um, love you so much that we'd be willing to do that. And Father, help us to love people in the same way that you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.